on March 23rd, 1775, one of the most profound speeches in the history of our great land was delivered to the Virginia Assembly by a guy that was termed a radical thinking 39-year-old attorney. Sounding almost like a prophet of God, he proclaimed, and this is out of Chuck Swindoll's book, Grace Awakening, but listen to this speech. He announced, if we wish to be free, we must fight. I repeat it, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left for us. It is vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. The gentleman may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war has actually begun. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? If life is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery, forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. With those words, Patrick Henry became famous, but more than that, he stirred the hearts and minds of a group of colonists that were willing to die for liberty and freedom. And for many of them, that's what they did. A little more than a year later, the Revolutionary War began as a a fight for liberty and freedom, and 4,435 soldiers gave their lives to provide liberty for their family and for all of us who would come after them some uh, 200-odd years later. Now, the number 4,435 may seem a bit paltry to know that only that many died in the Revolutionary War, but you must remember, and I must remember, there were only 13 colonies. There weren't a lot of people here then. But just for some perspective, understand that since that time, some 1.26 million, that means over 1,260,000 men and women have died in service to the United States of America. And Chuck Swindoll made an interesting observation in this book. He said, if we were to interview any of those people who have fought in the battle and asked, why did you live in those miserable and dangerous conditions? Or, or what is it that kept you out there fighting for your country? He said the response would probably include things like, well, our liberty was at stake. Or I love my country and our freedom was being threatened by the enemy. Or I, and I want to defend it. And if necessary, I would still fight to the death for it. And perhaps that's the reason that many thousands of people are on foreign soil today, like the soldiers we viewed just a few moments ago at Christmas in places like Korea and Afghanistan and Iraq, all over the world willing to put their life on the line so that you and I can enjoy the freedom that we have. And so that we don't take it for granted, we recognize tomorrow as Memorial Day. The the last Monday of May every year is the day we remember those who die, who've died and given their life for our freedom. We honor them. We respect them. We bless them. But this morning there's another freedom uh, that I that I want to talk about. It's a freedom that every believer in Jesus Christ has at their disposal. But for many of us, we fail to appreciate it. Almost like I think sometimes we fail to appreciate what the men and women who have died have done for us. 
often we fail to appreciate and enjoy what Christ has done. And so I want us to be reminded this morning, because the freedom we have in Christ also costs a life, a precious life. So if you have your Bible there, we're going to look in Romans chapter 5. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to honor God's Word uh, by reading 11 verses of Romans chapter 5. Verse 1, Therefore, since you have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Father, I pray that you'd honor your word as we open it up this morning. Teach us your great love for us is my prayer. In Christ's awesome name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I'm not so bold as to think that I can do this text, uh, these all, all these 11 verses justice in one sermon, and I have to confess that the sheer depth of theological truth in, in the passage we read is, um, man, it goes far beyond my capacity to fully understand. But at the same time, I, as we think about freedom, as we think about remembering, as we think about appreciating what we have in America this weekend, I think it's prudent and appropriate for us to think about what we have in Christ Jesus, if indeed... You're in Christ Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is um, I want us to work our way, uh, sort of work our way down through this text. I want to share with you some, some theological truth. I know that doesn't always excite us. But, man, this is really, really, really good stuff that God has done for you and me if you're in Christ. And you need to know. You need to know what you have in Jesus. You need to understand the love that God has for us in Christ. We need to understand that. And if you're not yet a believer, and I understand that some of you have not yet crossed over the line from faith into belief, and you've not maybe decided about this Jesus thing, I I hope you will listen this morning and just see the, the benefits, the love 
that God has for you. And so we're going to organize our thoughts around a couple points. First of all, we'll just talk about the privilege of, of knowing Christ uh, as our Lord and Savior. And there's just kind of the privileges of freedom we might talk about. Uh, notice there in verse 1 it says, this, Therefore we have been justified through faith. Paul makes a very bold statement <clears throat> here about the condition of those who believe and, and put their faith in Christ. And he says, he says there that we have been justified by faith and that faith... Uh, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a theological term, but let me explain it to you because it's, it's a pretty simple concept. What it means is those who are in Christ Jesus, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, if you've become a follower of Jesus, to be justified means that God has declared you to be righteous. And so kind of what happened is that the moment you put your faith in Christ, a spiritual transaction took place whereby God began to look at you and to view you through the lens of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so what that means for you is that when God looks at you, God declares you to be righteous. Now, if you study the grammar... That is a, in the language, the verb is a past tense. In other words, the, this declaration of your righteousness happens at the moment you place your faith in Christ. And once that transpires, then all of a sudden you are declared to be righteous in God's eyes forever. And so that's a tremendous truth there that when you give your life to Jesus, you are justified before God. God looks at you and God sees you as a righteous person, no matter what. Now, that is the overarching privilege that we want to focus on and talk about here for the next few minutes. But because that happened to you who are believers and to me who is a believer, because that happened, because God declared us to be righteous, there are some privileges that we enjoy that, that Paul wants to talk about here uh, to the group. And so let me just share with you four or five of, of, of these privileges that we have. Because you declared righteous, it says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, automatically, when we think about peace, we think, well, I, I want to be at peace. I want to be at rest. I want to have this comfort or this confidence. And we think we think of peace in terms of well, if there's no turmoil in my life, if there's no guilt in my life, if there's no bad stuff going on in my life, then I'm at peace. And, and I understand that, but that is subjective peace. And by subjective, it means that it's kind of based on our circumstances. But that's really not what the writer was talking about here. When he says that you have peace with God, well, let me read from John MacArthur. He explains it. Pretty well. He says the peace that Paul is speaking about here is not the subjective, but the objective. It's not a feeling that we experience, but it's a fact. And because it's a fact, it's always true. Apart from salvation through Jesus Christ, every human being is at enmity with God, spiritually at war with Him. If you see verse 10, you will notice that. And also in chapter 8, verse 7. But regardless of what a person's feelings about God may be, if we're outside of Christ, we are at war and we are enemies with God. But in the same way, the person who is justified by faith in Christ is at peace with, at peace with God, regardless of how they may feel at any given moment. So through a person's trust in Christ, the sinner's war with God has ended for all eternity. Now, 
I'll say more about this in a minute. But most people don't think of themselves as being, uh, particularly as an unbeliever, most people don't think of themselves as at war with God or being an enemy with God. Most people think, well, I'm just neutral. You know, it's not that I'm against God. I'm just not for God. But do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, he who is not with me is what? He who is not with me is against me. And the scripture is very clear. We'll come back to this idea in a moment. But I, here's what I want you to understand. When you've been declared righteous in God's eyes, what that means is that you are at, you are now at peace with God. God you're not in this spiritual battle or spiritual war with God. In fact, let's go ahead and talk. Let's do that. Let's talk about this right here. For the person that doesn't have Christ in their life, the scripture talks about this, that they're under God's wrath. They're under God's judgment. They're at enmity or they are enemies with God based on what we read in verse 10. I don't know if you ever read in the Old Testament, but when you read in the Old Testament, have you noticed how violent God is in the Old Testament? Has it ever captured your attention? Have you ever found yourself wondering, why would God say, go kill all these people? Why is it that God would make such a bold statement? Why is the God we talk about, why, how can a loving God be so violent? Well, the scripture says, the scripture teaches that God has this righteous anger, this wrath against sin. And because he has this wrath, this righteous anger against sin, God has to, he, he has to judge it. He has to punish it. And what you find in the Old Testament, when you see this punishment, it is because people have defiantly shook their hand in the face of God and said, I am not interested in you. I do not like you. I hate you. I'm against you. And so God pours out his punishment and his wrath against them. And you see it all through the scriptures in the Old Testament. And, and, you, and some of you are saying, yeah, but why does God not do that anymore? Because God poured out his wrath, as we'll talk about a little later. He poured all that wrath out on Jesus Christ. And so the punishment that he would give to me and the punishment that he would give to you because of his wrath doesn't come because of Jesus Christ and what he did. And so when you're declared righteous, you now have peace with God. You're not at war with God anymore. But secondly, not only are we at peace with God, notice there in verse 2, it says, through Him, through Jesus Christ our Lord, or through whom we have gained access by faith. And in other words, not only do we have peace with God, but the Bible says that we have access to God. And I know we've talked about this before if you attend here regularly, but here's what we don't understand as Americans. We don't understand the privilege we have to be able to pray. Man, to, to the Jewish mind, to the Old Testament, to the person of the Old Testament, to the Jewish boy or the Jewish girl or the Jewish man or the Jewish woman, they didn't have access to God. They couldn't come into God's presence. They had to go through the priest. And even back in the time of Moses, you may remember when Moses would go up on the mountain and God would, would descend and reveal himself to Moses. 
The Bible says that even the whole mountain became holy just because of the presence of God. In fact, they couldn't, if the, if the cows went up on the mountain, they would die because of the holiness of God. And so no one could get into God's presence. No one had access to God. And yet the Bible says here that we, through Jesus Christ, when you were declared righteous, you obtained access to God. Now that word there, access, it's used three times in the New Testament. And the other two times are over in the book of uh, Ephesians. If you'll turn to your right, a couple books, uh, go past the two Corinthian letters. Ephesians, listen to chapter 2, verse 18. It says, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. There's that word again. And then in verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Listen, we have access to God. We, we have the right, the privilege. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews that you and I, we can come boldly into the throne of grace. We can bow our knees and bow our hearts and you and I, we can talk to the God of heaven. We can, we can enter into, into his spiritual presence. And that never before had happened. But when you were declared righteous, God gave you the right to be able to pray to him. God gave you the right and the privilege to be able to talk to him anytime, any place, anywhere. And so we have access to God. And then there's a third statement there. It says we have, we have obtained or gained access by faith. And listen to this statement. Into this grace in which we now stand. So we have access to God. We have the peace of God. And we have the grace of God. And here's, here's what's significant. Because it talks about this grace in which we now stand. There, there's a kind of a biblical analogy. We, If you were attending a couple months ago, you remember we talked about standing firm in Christ. There... The idea of standing gives an idea of permanent, uh, idea of permanence. And so when the apostle talks about this grace in which we're staying, what he's communicating to the, to the Romans and consequently to you and me is that we're in God's grace permanently. See, we're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. But in God's grace, he doesn't pour out his wrath upon us. He doesn't judge our sin. And so what the apostle was communicating here is that you and I, that because we've been declared righteous, we have God's grace in our favor forever. And that means that you're never, or I'm never, we are never going to be punished or held accountable for our sin. And I mean never. None of that stuff you did. Uh, even the bad stuff. You're never going to incur God's wrath. Or be accountable for that. Because we're in grace. And so that's the third privilege. Then there's another privilege. And I wish time would allow us to go in detail on this. But I want you to look on. Uh, as we read on through verse 2. It says. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. But listen to this statement. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I've never, in being a pastor all these years and studying all these years or, or, or not studying all these years, whatever the case may be, I've never really understood that 
at the moment you were born again, it's like God took a picture of his love and he poured it into you. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have God's love in all its fullness in you and available to you. And notice how you say, well, how does that work? Through the Holy Spirit, which he has given to us. And if you study, it's interesting, and I won't get into all the details, but if you study the grammar, when because God gave us the Holy Spirit into our hearts, we get all of the love of God. And so you have in your heart, if you're a believer in Christ, you have in your heart the love of the God of the universe. Imagine how your life could be different if you and if I, if we figured out how to allow that love to shine through us. I mean, think about, imagine how the way we treat people and the way, the things we do for people and the things we do for God. Imagine how that would change if you understood and if I understood, if we could get our hands around the fact that the God of heaven has poured his love into our hearts and we have in our hearts the very love of God. Man, that is available to you and me. Imagine how it would change us. We could be, but see, we have this thing. We are so human and we got this fleshly nature. We, we just have the hardest time dealing with people. We have the hardest time loving people because we don't understand that the love of God is in our heart and that love of God should set us free. I read this story. It's kind of a cheesy story, but I'll tell you, see if you see what you think about it. But it's one of these, you know, God dies and goes to heaven. So this old boy, he dies and he goes up to heaven and he gets to the, to the gate to heaven, to the pearly gates. And there was the angel standing there. And he thought, man, I, I, man, I, I don't know if I'm gonna get in. And so he kind of walks up, and he's kind of, he's pretty bummed out. And he walks up, and he says, "What do I need to do to get in?" And the angel says, "It's just one thing." He says, "What is it?" He said, "Well, you need to spell the word love." He thought that's easy. He said, "L-O-V-E." Angel says, "Come on in." He thought, "Man, that's easy." And the angel says, well, man, I need to run a couple errands. Would you mind manning the gate for a few minutes? The guy says, "No problem. I mean, I'm in. I'm happy." So he's man in the gate. Angel goes to run errands. He looks up and here comes a man walking toward him. And the closer the guy gets, he realizes it's a guy that he didn't like on earth. In fact, he hated him. I mean, they were just, they fought all the time. And when the guy recognizes who's at the gate, he thought, oh, my stars, I'll never get in. And he had that sheepish, bummed look out on his face. And the guy says, well, you just, you only got to do one thing to get in. He said, what is it? He says, you just got to spell a word. He says, what's the word? He says, chrysanthemum. <laughs> I mean, he's already in heaven. And he still has a hard time dealing with people he doesn't like. Think about us. We're already saved. The love of God is in our heart. And we have a hard time sometimes dealing with people we don't like. But imagine how your life and my life and our personality and the way we treat people would change if we realize that when God declared us righteous, we got peace, we got access, we got grace. But imagine if we realize that we got the love of the God universe in our heart. I mean, that's what Paul's writing to this church. He says, you you need to, listen, you need to understand this. I mean, you got, being free in Christ, when you got all these privileges, you you got all this stuff. And then he goes on to define that love. Look at, and we don't have a lot of time, but I want you to look with us at verse 6. He kind of defines what kind of love it is. He says, you see, at just the right time, 
when we were still powerless. You might want to write above that word. Just write the word weak because what it really means is that when we were weak and powerless, when there was nothing we could do, it says Christ died for the ungodly. So we were powerless, which means we were weak. We were ungodly. You might want to write the word in the margin there, wicked. We don't like that term. Nobody wants to think that they're wicked. But the Bible says that we, before Christ, apart from Christ, that we are wicked. If you don't believe human beings are wicked, just go home and get on foxnews.com or one of those other websites and just read about the disgusting stuff that people do to one another. We're wicked. We're weak. We're wicked. And it said, and it goes on to talk about how nobody would die for a righteous man, but somebody might die for a good man. But while we were sinners, while we were wayward sinners who missed the mark, wicked, weak, and powerless, Christ died for us. I mean, the the analogy that Paul, and we have a hard time in our culture coming to grips with the picture that Paul's painting. Uh, I have a hard time knowing the difference between a righteous man and a good man. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever noticed that or struggled with that. I always thought if somebody was righteous, to be righteous is better than to be good. But the more I, the more I read and the more I learned this week, that's really not true. If somebody's righteous, it means that they toe the mark or they toe the line. You know, every week I get up here and I just get right to the edge and, and that's where I get. Well, when someone toes the mark or toes the line, what it means is, is they just get right up to the edge of the rules and they keep all of them. So a righteous person does good. But a good person or a righteous person does what he's supposed to. But a good person is somebody that goes far beyond what they should do. In fact, uh, one writer said it this way. He said, he said, to be righteous is to pay my debts. To be good is to pay somebody else's debts. A righteous person feeds his family. But a good person will feed his enemy. And so Paul's saying, ain't nobody going to die for a righteous man. He says, somebody might die for a really good man. But Christ died for us. And we're weak and wayward and wicked. I mean, think about this. Who would you die for? Really? Who would you die for? I bet you can count on your hands the number of people you'd die for. You might be able to count them on one hand. Some of us, there ain't nobody we'd die for, right? I don't care how good they are. And yet the Bible says that Jesus died for us in our weakness, in our waywardness, and in our wickedness. You know, that's the price of freedom. The privilege of freedom is this 
peace and grace and access and love. But the price of freedom is a death. If you got your copy of the word there, look again at verse 6. You see at just the right time where we're still powerless, Christ died. And then verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 9 says, we've been now justified by his blood. Well, how did we get justified by his blood? Because he died. And then look down at verse 10. It says, when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And so the, the picture that, that Paul is painting here is that spiritual freedom has a price and that price is death. That's the price. The price for your freedom and the price for my freedom is, is death. That is the only way it could happen. And what's interesting about this whole idea is we... We enjoy the benefits, but we don't often think about the cost. And as we, and, and that's, that's true on Memorial Day. We have Memorial Day weekend and we all love the holiday. But how often do we stop and pause and just give thanks to the men and women of God? Do we sit down with our kids, our grandkids, and say, you know, here's why we have Memorial Day. Because 1,260,000 plus men and women have died over the last 200 odd years so that we could be free. We just run off to the lake or we run off to the river. We run off to the mall or we run off to, and and I'm not, I'm not whipping us. I'm just saying a lot of times we just don't, we just forget to think about cost. And oftentimes what happens to us as believers, we enjoy the peace, we enjoy the access, we enjoy the grace, we're glad that God loves us, but how often do we think about the cost? And how often do we think about that? This, I think the guy's name was Brian Bill. He said, he was talking about this idea. See, we don't want to wrestle with the issue of God's wrath. We don't want to wrestle with the issue of, of being an enemy. We don't want to wrestle with the issue of our sinfulness. And Brian Bill says it's not an easy truth to stomach, but before we come to Christ, the Bible says that we're at war with God. We were enemies with God. And, and we just forget how serious God is about our sin. We don't think about it. But God, listen... God killed his son. God killed his son for your sin and for my sin. If you have kids, if you have a little boy or a little girl or a little grandbaby or granddaughter or grandson, I want you to just think about that for a minute. There's a handful of people we'd die for. Who would you let your kid die for? Who would you let your grandson, your granddaughter, your son or daughter die for? God didn't just let Jesus die. The Bible says that God killed him. God put him to death for us. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, I want to read. Let me just read this. I'm going to read a passage out of the message Just to give us a picture of what Jesus did for us. 
as a reminder. You remember, if you were here last week, we talked about how uh, our sin is separated between us and our God. You remember I did the analogy and I said, you know, here's... If this paper represents our sin, that sin separated between us and God, and all we like sheep have gone astray, and God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, listen to, to what that looked like, uh, according to the prophet Isaiah. 52, verse 13 says, Just watch my servant blossom, exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd. But he didn't begin that way. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured past, Recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback. Kings shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. And then the prophet says, who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God. That's Jesus. A scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. Nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. You've done that, haven't you? You've seen someone that's disfigured and you couldn't look him in the eye because you didn't know what to say. Most of us have experienced that. But one look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains that he carried, our disfigurements, all things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. Mine and yours. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises we get healed. We all like sheep. We've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing. Gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins. Everything we've done wrong on him. On him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered. And like a sheep being sheared. He... He took it all in silence. Justice miscarried. And he was let off. And did anybody really know what was happening? He died without a thought of his own welfare. Beaten bloody for the sins of the people. They buried him with the wicked. They threw him in the grave with a rich man. Even though he had never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still it was what God had in mind all along. To crush him, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin. God had in mind all along to crush him, his own, his very own, to crush him. For us. That's the price that God paid. Great things He has taught us, yes, but great things He had done. He had to die. I mean, the next time 
we think about sinning, the next time you consider doing this or I consider doing that, maybe we ought to think about the price. That God was pleased to crush him. Because the only way you and me, any of us, could be forgiven was for him to die. That's it. I want to read this letter. One of our men in our church, Dan had asked him to say a prayer, and instead they wrote a letter. And when I read it, I thought, it's, i got to share it with you. you. Many of you know Dave Burnett. He served in Vietnam. He's one of our deacons. But he wrote this letter. He says, He says, we honor our fallen soldiers who died so we can live free. Christ said the greatest love is to die for our friend. Today I wish to honor all my fellow soldiers and salute all those who died in wars. From 1776 all the way to Afghanistan, I solemnly remember three young soldiers of 1969. Smitty, who was right beside me on my first firefight in Vietnam and took all the enemy bullets meant for both of us. Larry Wayne Glover, my best friend, took my place as point man to give me a break. He was killed by a Viet Cong booby trap. Joe Rendon, known as the chief, an Indian from Colorado, was ambushed at nightfall. Dave says, I remember hearing the bullets and seeing the tracers light up the rice field as I ran to save my friend. When I reached him, he was bleeding and unconscious, but I was able to hoist him to my shoulder and get him back to our base camp and and get him on a medevac helicopter and to the doctor. But he didn't make it. He writes, may they rest in heavenly peace. They died before they were 21 years old, as were most of the soldiers we honor. Life is precious. It's unpredictable. God help us be prepared for eternity. Freedom is costly as shown by the number of graves occupied by those willing to put their life, their life on the line for each one of us. We are blessed as a church to have so many who served. Many fought and returned. Some never made it. To all of those who gave their life, I salute you. Sergeant Dave Burnett, 173rd Airborne, Vietnam veteran. As I thought of this letter, I'm reminded that freedom has a price. I had a conversation with Dave before I saw this letter, before he wrote this letter. And, and you see, here's, here's what I want us to understand this morning. We know that over a million people died for America. But but to Dave, these guys took his place. They took his bullet. They got his booby trap. They were the one caught in the ambush. He could have died. He would have died and he probably should have died. But these guys were in his place. 
And when you think about Jesus and the cross, at the cross, he took your bullets. He, he's the one that took our place. Should we die? Yeah. Could we die? Yeah. Would we die without him? Yeah. Jesus taking our place. And so this morning as we reflect on all that this means, sin is so serious and God's wrath is so real. He killed his own son. And his own son took the bullets for us so we could be free. Great things he has taught us, yes. Great things he has done, yes. But shouldn't great our rejoicing be in Jesus the Son? Paul closes this section there in verse 11. Let me just read that and I have a thought and we'll wrap up. He says, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom now we have received reconciliation. In fact, that word rejoice is also up in verse 2. It says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And in verse 3 it says we rejoice in our sufferings. And he goes on to say, do you know what the word rejoice means? This word here, do you know what it means? It means to boast and be proud of. And what Paul is saying is because you've been declared righteous, because you have peace and grace and access and love, because Jesus took your bullets, because Jesus took your place, not only should we rejoice, but we should boast in him. We should be proud of him for what he's done for us. But how often, how often in the neighborhood, how often in the home, how often in the workplace, how often in school, how often at the ball field... Are we not proud of him? How often do we not boast of him? And so my thought, I thought, why, so what, so what? I think what God wants for us as believers, he wants us to, to boast about Jesus. He wants us to be proud. Of his son Jesus, whom he gave to take our place. We should remember. And because we remember, it should make a difference in our life and how we live every day. It just should. Let's pray together.